I've loved so much this study through the book of John that I really hate to cut things off. <laughs> I don't know about you, because everything you know, just flows from one week to the next week and, and that sort of thing. Because usually around Christmas, I'll preach two or three Christmas sermons, but we're just going to do the one on Christmas Eve this year. But, so we'll be jumping to John chapter 17 this morning. Just some amazing things about this particular chapter. Uh, the whole chapter is given to one single prayer. This is Jesus praying. This is the longest prayer in Scripture that we have coming from the mouth of Jesus. Very often it's divided into three different parts. First of all, he prays for himself. Secondly, he prays for the 11 disciples. And thirdly, he prays for all other believers, including you and me. So let's have that in mind as we read these first seven verses, or verse five verses, rather. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may, be, may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What we're going to do, this whole chapter is... Uh, is covered with this prayer. We're going to do it into three parts because there's three different sections in which Jesus prays for particular people. Uh, first of all, he prays for himself. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Next week, or not next Sunday, because I guess next Sunday we will be preaching on chapter 17. Uh, and following prayer, he prays for the 11 disciples. So first of all, he prays for himself in the beginning part of this prayer. Then he prays for these 11 guys that are gathered around. Still remember, they're still in the upper room. It seems like they've been there for weeks <laughs> since we've been studying this stuff, actually months, but they've only been there for one evening. That should show us how chock full of really good stuff that took place in that upper room that night. But then, uh, the last sermon we're going to do, he prays for other believers, including us. So what a precious prayer in three parts. So today we're only going to look at the first five verses. And this is Jesus praying on his own behalf. Some wonder why in the world it is that because the Son is every bit as divine as the Father, why in the world would Jesus be praying to God the Father and the Holy Spirit? As we study through the Gospel of John, we see this over and over again, that Jesus is just fully, he's fully divine. He's just as much God as God the Father is and God the Holy Spirit is. So why would he need to pray? It's because he's not only God, he's also a man in human form. Every much human as we are. 
And we know the value and the need of prayer for ourselves. He prays for himself. We must always remember that even though Jesus is the Son of God, He is fully God. God, just as the Father is God, just as the Holy Spirit is, He is also human with all the human frailties that we have. But for one thing, He has no sin. But I want to challenge us with the idea this morning that just because that's true does not mean that he was not legitimately and really tempted to sin. As a matter of fact, for him to be a a, a worthy representative on our behalf, it demands that he be tempted just as we are, in the same manner and in the same ways. So let's not have this idea that that when Jesus suffered, when Jesus did this and he did that, it was not like it would be for me because he's also God. But we need to understand that in his his human nature, he's just as human as we are in every way except without original sin. That's the only difference. In his human nature, he was tempted just as we are. In his human nature, he needed needed to pray to the Father for his strength just as much as we do. He was tempted just as much, every bit as we would be at this point, not to sacrifice himself for the benefit of an ungodly people. He had that little bug in his ear whispering to him, why do this? Why go through this? Why subject yourself to this? We mustn't forget what he has already endured unspeakable things up to this point in his life on our behalf. Paul very aptly describes the coming of the Son of God into the world in human form in Philippians chapter 2. Let each of you Look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being formed in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, the point of death, even death on the cross. Do you understand that it was an act of humiliation for Jesus, the Son of God, the divine one, to take upon himself the flesh of a man? Humbling, humiliating. 
And yet he had already done that at this point. So I want to challenge us with the idea that the suffrage of Jesus didn't start during the Passion Week or even the weeks before that when he was preaching and teaching and people said some things badly to him and that sort of thing. That his trial and tribulation started at the point of the Incarnation. And something he's endured now for 30-something years. Which is roughly half of my life. A little less than half my life. So it's not that he became man for just an hour or two, or for a week, or for a month. But for 30-plus years, he endured living as a man in this fallen world. He spent nine months growing in Mary's womb. And I would imagine the Lord was, has shown His very great wisdom in this, is that none of us can remember that, and none of us can remember the time we were actually born. Hallelujah! Probably the most traumatic or one of the most traumatic things that ever happened in any era of our lifetime is going through the birth process. Which babies resist, by the way. They don't want to come out. They're in that nice, warm, and cozy, controlled environment, and they don't want to come out here in the coldness of this hard world. Don't forget that Jesus has endured that, just like we all do. He's endured all the aches and pains of growing up. Growing up always entails some degree of suffering. Sometimes we are not wrong in suffering because we've done ill to other people. But this is a hard, cold world. That every person that's been born since Adam and Eve has been born into. Trial and tribulation. He's endured these boneheaded men for three years. He keeps teaching them the same stuff over and over again, and it's like nothing ever settles in. Every time it seems as we're reading the gospel, it seems as if they may advance a little bit, then they say something or do something, but just plain stupid. Sometimes I want to say, how in the world can you do that? You were with him, you touched him, you saw him, you smelled him, you heard him. Boy, I would love to be able to do that. It would certainly make things a lot easier for me to believe all of it. See, this is a measure of the coldness and the hardness of the human heart. That these guys lived with him. They breathed the same air. They ate the same food. They drank the same drink. They slept in the same place, etc., etc., etc. And they were still so human. Now, 
Not only that, we know the rest of the story, and we know that within a matter of hours, they're all going to desert him and scatter like rats on a sinking ship. Remember those words that he prayed. He's, he's about to do this. They're about to leave that upper room, which we've been studying all through chapter 17. And they're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is a passage that I always bring people to when they say things like, well, Jesus really didn't suffer like I would if I went through what he did. Jesus prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was afraid. He not only prayed that once, he repeated it two more times. Was he sincere? You bet he was. Please, please don't make the mistake of believing like some people do that because Jesus is both divine and human. His suffering was just not the same as it would have been for me. If anything, his suffering was far Because he didn't just suffer the punishment due to only one, but rather the punishment due to a very great multitude. Which includes little old you and little old me. In this prayer, one of the things that we, can be noted is this is Jesus. How do we, how do, what do we do when we pray? Before we pray, what do we do? Always, pretty much. We bow our head. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus looked up and prayed. We've talked so much in the Gospel of John that this really is one of the principal places where we come up with the, the doctrine of the Trinity. That Jesus is absolutely, completely divine, just as much as the Father is, that the Son, the Son is. In other words, Jesus can lift his eyes to look to heaven to the Father because he is co-equal with the Father. It's not a, a, a lesser one coming before a far greater one. Co-equal with the Father, not an inferior coming before a superior. Father, the hour has come. The hour that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have known eternally would take place. Because they jointly decreed that it would happen at the very beginning of time. The hour has finally come. I don't know about you, but very often I get very anxious waiting. 
you know, maybe we're waiting for one of the kids to get here that's coming to visit or whatever, and you just, we just want to, you know, be there to welcome them and hug them and kiss them and, and all that. Sometimes we're anxious for other reasons. But what we're seeing here is the unfolding of the will of God, the will of the Father, the will of the Son, and the will of the Holy Spirit, all in absolute unity with one another in everything. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. The glory of God is the glory of God alone. There's a sense in which we will bear the glory of God, but it's not the same thing. This is a glory that God himself can only possess. Jesus was already glorified in his divine nature. And yet Jesus is also human. Could it be that Jesus is speaking here of the glorification of his own human nature? This glorification is a glory that the human Jesus has earned in his living a life in perfect obedience to the Father. No deviation from it at all. In a sense, this glorification is an act of acceptance by the Father of what Christ has accomplished. in his perfect obedience to the Father as a man. There's a sense in which it's an act of acceptance by the Father of his acts of perfect obedience to him in everything. See, glory must be imparted to Christ's human nature to make him heavenly fit. There's a sense in which glory is ascribed to believers. You've heard the theological term glorification. John Murray defines our glorification in this sense. It is the complete and final redemption of the whole person when in the integrity of body and spirit, the people of God will be conformed to the image of the risen, exalted, and glorified Redeemer when the very body of their humiliation will be conformed to the body of the Christ's glory. You see, there's a time when you and I will understand these things far better than we do now. There's a time when you and I will experience 
a similar, similar glorification. Do you know why? Because until we are glorified as such, we are not fit to stand in the presence of holy God. We must be glorified. Which means this, is that glorification for us takes place in our spirit at the time of our death. Otherwise, our spirit could not go to heaven to be with Christ. It must be glorified first. But we understand that it won't be made absolutely complete until the second coming of Christ when our spirit and our body will be joined together in all of glory. Reality is that Christ has already finished much or most even of what the Father sent him to do. He's at the very tail end of his 30-something-year-old life. Just hours now left of it. He's been working from the time he was conceived to fulfill all the Father had set for him to do. There are just a few last things. He still has to die. And he still has to be resurrected. And he still has to send into heaven. He's accomplished a lot at this point. He's endured a lot at this point. But nothing like what will unfold in the next few hours. He obviously dreads what is about to happen. And I can imagine that the principal and most far-reaching reason for it is this, is really is not us. It's when he's going to suffer the wrath of his father. Not because of anything he's done. But for what we've done. And what those 11 guys around him have done. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all glorified in the actions of the other two persons of the Godhead. God the Father is glorified by the actions of the Son and the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is glorified by the actions of God the Father and God the Son. God the Holy Spirit, or God the Son, is glorified by the actions of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Remember, an absolute perfect harmony and agreement with one another. Always. All three working in perfect harmony with one another. 
each having a role in the plan of redemption, and each glorifies the other two in its fulfillment of that role. The glorification of Christ the man will not be completed until he ascends to the Father in heaven. And it must be so. He is there as we're speaking this morning. In all the glory of his Father, in all the glory of heaven. If we could but see him now, it would make wholehearted belief a whole lot easier than it is. We try to imagine what it's like, but we can't even begin to imagine what it is. The only thing that we know is this, 1 John 3, 2, that one of these days we will see him as he is. In all of his fullness, and all of his glory, whether that be him descending here into the world while we're living or our spirit ascending to him in heaven at the time of our death. I would imagine that we're going to experience a lot of things at that time, but one of those is going to be just a sense of relief. <laughs> Finally, finally, it's true. It's really true. Till that time, every one of us, at least on occasion, will have our doubts. But there will come a time when we will have no doubts ever again. Jesus came for many reasons, not just to save us. You know, if you ask most Christians, why did Jesus come? It's all, he came to save me. But that's not all of it. He came also to reveal to us the triune God who exists. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. See, they, all of those things are taught in the Old Testament, but only in shadows. Jesus brought the reality to people, the true God that is. Verse 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. Do you want Jesus, what his mission was? That's it. You can't take anybody, any place in Scripture that spells it out more clearly than that. This is the reason Jesus came. That we would know the God who truly is as much as it is humanly possible. People always wonder, what are we going to do in heaven? How, 
Is it gonna, am I going to just get bored of heaven after a while? Doing the same thing over? I'm just going to be worshiping at the throne, you know, for the rest of eternity? Don't you think I'll probably get bored with that at some point? Our vocation will be to know God. And the more we know, the more there will be to know. And we will do it for all of eternity and never know all of it. Can you imagine? Our eternal vocation will be coming to know God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. More and more, and more and more and more. The more we know, the more we will realize there's way more to know. That's how great and how awesome our God is. Do you understand that that is Jesus' greatest passion of all? That is what he wants for you and me more than anything else? To know him, to know the Father, to know the Holy Spirit. Jesus came not only to save us from our sins, but also to make the triune God known to us in ways he never would have been otherwise. People very often picture the coming of Christ simply as Jesus came to live and die for sinners, and that's the end of it. No. I would say even more than that, he came to make the true God truly known to people like us. As much as people can understand it. And we will never understand it completely. Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Again, if I were to ask people, why do you think Jesus came to the world? Over, over, overwhelming, they would say, to save sinners. That was the whole reason for Jesus' mission. But I would say that's even a minor thing. He came that we would know Him. and the Father, and the Son. That is not his secondary mission. That is his principal and primary mission. Saving us from our sins was a necessity to make the other possible. Do you understand that? I glorified you on earth, he says to the Father in 17.4. 
I mean, here's another example. You know, ask people, why did Jesus come? It's going to be to save sinners, to save me from my sins. It was also to reveal the glory of God into this darkened world in a manner that it never had been before. You know, we talk theologically about the two different mechanisms of revelation, general revelation, which is, which is available to everybody. It's also called natural revelation, but it's just creation. Then anybody with any sense that looks out upon creation and begins to put two and two together understands that somebody had to make this. It didn't just happen just accidentally, which is what common knowledge is today. But there's also what's called special revelation, which is principally by the Word of God, the Bible. Understand that Jesus is the brilliance of the glory of God being manifest in the world in a way that it never had been before and never has been since. Jesus was truly God coming into this world, coming into life. In a sense, the creator becoming part of creation to some degree. There's another part of it too, and that is this. Is that God continues to reveal his glory to the unbelieving world around us, through us. That there's a sense in which we are not completely glorified. That will not happen until the end. But at the time of your conversion, a process called glorification begins. A transformation takes place between being this, this sinner who was not saved and now who's someone who continues to be a sinner but at the same time is saved. There's a sense in which we are already involved in the, the glorification process where God is transforming us from the way that we used to be to the way that we're going to be. What I'm telling you is this, if you're looking for the glory of God to be manifest in this world, there's no better place to look than to his people. To his church. Jesus said this, Matthew 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let me ask you something. How often in your Christian life and walk do you ever think about the fact that you have called, been called 
to give glory to God in your life, in what you do, in what you say, in what you don't do, in what you don't say. Some people would have answered this question. I would have asked the question, what is your vocation as a Christian? What some people would say is, my vocation as a Christian is to tell other people about Jesus. That great commission thing. And let me tell you, that's part of it. But you want to know what our real root vocation is? It's the same as Jesus's, and that is to glorify God. It should be that which is not at the bottom of our list. It should be the thing that is at the very top of our list. And the fact that it's not, let's just be honest, I don't think for anybody in this room that it's at the top of their list. It's just a measure of what a hold sin still has on us that it would keep us from doing our principal and primary vocation of glorifying God in our life. So is your light shining? Is the glory of God shining through you? to the darkness of this world. That is the light of Christ. And it is exactly what this world needs. Even though it doesn't know that, even though it utterly and absolutely denies that, it's what this Rotten, dirty, evil, wicked world needs more than anything else.